the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the 11th chapter. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Christ. May be seated. I invite the boys and girls to come up. everybody when I was um, your age going to school I lived in New York and um, there were lots of Roman Catholic boys and girls and on Ash Wednesday they would come to school with this blob of dirt on their head and I would think well what's wrong with you why don't you get why don't you wash your face before you come to school but they had been to church early in the morning, and they had ashes put on them. And they wore them the whole day. I thought they looked kind of dumb. But they didn't. That, that's not how they felt, because that's, that's what they did. They put ashes on. How does it feel? Stand up and turn around. Look at all, stand up. Turn, look at all the people with all this dirt on their, on their heads. See that? How, what do you think? Okay, you can sit down now. It, it's something that we do in church to remind us that we, when I put it on, it says, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And what that means is that you're going to die. Down the road, you're dust. You came from dust. You're going back to dust. Um, if you had this in the morning, how would you feel wearing it all day? And not a lot of kids in school had it. You'd stand out, wouldn't you? They might make fun of you. This is something we wear with pride. This means we're Christians. We don't do a lot in the Christian church to make ourselves stand apart from the crowd because there's not a lot of folks out there looks like this. We had dinner at Applebee's tonight and I think we're the only folks in the restaurant that had this. So we're proud of this. Wear this with pride because this says, I'm a Christian. Thank you for being here this evening. I'm proud of you being here for Ash Wednesday. And we'll always wear that cross with pride. You may be seated. There is in Washington, D.C., a four-lane highway that goes around the whole city. Uh, it makes uh, traveling around Washington easy, and it's, it's called the Beltway. goes around the city. And the Beltway then encloses 
all of most of all of our governmental buildings and most of the the people who govern our country. They are said to be people who are inside the beltway. Uh, it's the people who live in the that's the swamp that the president said he's going to drain. The swamp is inside the beltway. And it's said of people inside the beltway that they don't know what's going on outside the beltway. That they're isolated and insulated from everybody else in the country. And uh, there's a certain amount of, of haughtiness and the elitism for the people who live in the beltway. In the first century, in Jesus' day, there was a wall that went around Jerusalem. It wasn't a highway. It was a wall. It was a wall that was there for defense. And inside that wall was the temple and all the people who were in charge of the religious life of the Jews. It was also a swamp. It included the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. And at one time, Jesus called them all hypocrites. They were people who had, many of them had their positions passed on from father to son. And uh, they were the religious elite. And they had power. And power corrupts. And so their main job was to hold on to their power. And early in the ministry of Jesus, they became Jesus' enemies. Now, during this Lenten season, during these uh, Wednesday nights, we're going to think about what happened, the, the confrontations that happened inside this beltway in Jerusalem. Because a number of things happened inside the beltway where Jesus confronted all the religious leaders. They all came at him one at a time, and he knocked them all down. And uh, they decided that they wanted to kill him. But the first confrontation is one that Jesus started when he came into, into the city and cleansed the temple, kicked out the money changers, threw the money on the ground, and, and uh, just upset everything. Jerusalem was a dangerous place for Jesus. It was like a lion's den. The Gospel of Luke tells us that when Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem, and he set his face to go to Jerusalem, his disciples were, they didn't know what to do. They knew it was dangerous. He was just intent on going there and confronting the religious establishment. And so tonight we have the cleansing of the temple. Now, the, the Gospels tell us that, that Jesus came into, the temple, came into the Jerusalem on Sunday after the Palm Sunday parade, you know, the, the parade without a permit, right? He had this parade without a permit, and they came in. He went to Jerusalem, he went to the temple, and he looked around. And then he left, he went out the gate, down into Kidron Valley and up the other side, where he went and stayed with Bethany, at, in, uh, in Bethany. The next morning, he came back on Monday. And it was on Monday that he cleansed the temple, created such chaos that on that day, on the Monday, his enemies decided that they were going to kill him. Now, when he cleansed the temple on that Monday, I think by Tuesday we're back in business. He made his point. And he had made enemies. And for the rest of the week then, 
those enemies would come to one at a time and confront him. And he would best all of them. I know of three reasons why Jesus might have wanted to, to cleanse the temple. And the first is this. Some people believe that the selling of all this stuff was something new. There are some records that say that before this time, this market that they had was outside the gate, was down in the Kidron Valley. There were four large markets where you could go and buy animals for sacrifice. But somehow Caiaphas, the high priest, decided that it would be better to have that in, in the temple courtyard itself. And he, he set it up in what's called the Court of the Gentiles. This is a large area where non-Jews were allowed to come and pray. They were not allowed any closer to the temple. But they could go there. And so it's believed that Caiaphas came and he said, let's have this, have this here. And they took over that, that's, that area. And Jesus didn't like that. He said, this should be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. And the second reason is this, that people were getting ripped off. What happens to basketball tickets when the Razorbacks are in the final four? What happens to, what happens to the price of tickets? Anybody know? How high? They up, up, up. Well, what's the reason? Because the supply and demand. Well, that's what happens when you have to buy an animal to sacrifice. And the guys who are selling them can set the price, and that's what happened. Selling animals, selling sheep, selling pigeons, they jacked the price up. You have made it a den of thieves, Jesus said. The third reason is that, that this was a place for Gentiles to go, for non-Jews. And Jesus quoted Isaiah 50, 56, where God says here, wow, all the people are mine. I want them all to come. So listen to this. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it, and hold fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. God wanted all people to come to him. And now, Caiaphas in this marketplace had taken over their place. And how could these people pray? With all the hubbub of spying and selling, all the animals making noise, and the stink. And so Jesus said, you can't do that. And he turned over the, the money changers and he made... He made a lot of enemies that day. So the first confrontation there was one that he made up. That was no way to run the house of God. Now if you ask, why did they do that? Why did these religious leaders do that? I want to suggest to you uh, that familiarity with holy things makes holy things common. Familiarity with holy things makes holy things common. And that's true with a lot of stuff. When we lived in Norway, I loved to take the train that went from, from the station up, the number one train up the hill, 
up to the top, up to a place called Franger Saturn, and we would have two cups of coffee and an apple, an apple cake, and it was $20. But it was worth it. And the trip up, you could see out across the large parts of Oslo. It was wonderful. And every time I rode it, I was just so pleased and, and amazed to see it. But the people who rode that every day, they didn't see that. Because what was special to me had become ordinary to them. Or if you go to New York, the New Yorkers are not impressed by the big buildings, but the people who come out of town, they're just gawking and looking up and down and say, my, 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 and the, Nor- uh, and the, the New Yorkers say, what a bunch of rubes gawking like that. See, the, so that the, the special becomes ordinary. And what happens to these religious leaders for, for many generations, they had had all this religious stuff, and it had, become, it had become ordinary. There was no sense of awe and wonder about their faith. Think of the story of, of the, the Good Samaritan. Guys laying there on the road, two men come down. They've come down from that same temple. They've been working up there. They've been serving God, doing the central thing of their religion. Well, that was over. That job is over. So they were heading home to Mama. And they couldn't see the guy laying there in the dust. Something their religion said they should do, they didn't do because they had been dealing with holy things, but the holiness of those things didn't touch them. And so we read in the gospel today that after Jesus cleansed the temple, that day, that day, they looked for a way to kill him. How can religious people who know the Ten Commandments, who know thou shalt not kill, how can they decide to kill somebody? Well, that's easy. Because they've, the holy stuff doesn't mean anything to them anymore. The familiarity with holy things is so deadly. It loses all sense of war, awe and wonder in the presence of God. For pastors, it's a great danger for people like me because we handle holy things all the time. All the time. And it's easy for us, for the holy to become common and lose the wonder and the awe of the mysteries of God. I've got to preach every Sunday. Well, one Sunday seems to be like the next Sometimes I have to tell myself, look, God is going to be working through you today. You better, better get, get your game on, right? So, so a young man said to his mother, Mother, I don't want to go to church today. And mother said, you have to go. You're the pastor. <laughs> See, sometimes it happens that, that those of us who handle holy things they lose their, their wonder. Prayer. You know, they ask, you ask me to I'm supposed to be the guy who does all the praying, right? Some days I don't feel like praying. I really don't. And so it, it just does my heart so good when we got something going on here in the church and somebody says, Pastor, I'll say the prayer. Wow. I love that. 
I love that. Because I don't have any better connection with God than you do. I love it when somebody says, Pastor, I'll pray. It doesn't have to be perfect. My prayers aren't perfect. But we believe in the priesthood of all believers, and you can pray just as well as I can. Bible reading. Lots of people get great, great inspiration and joy out of Bible reading. For many of us, the Bible is simply a happy hunting ground for preaching texts. We don't read it for inspiration. We read it for what we can make out of it. And the holy becomes common. That's so easy for pastors. And if you wonder why there are so many scandals in the ministry, it's because the holy has become common and the things that were so exciting once upon a time when you were ordained are not exciting. And you become more important than the message. And here, for you, for you who are here on a regular basis, holy things can become common for you too. You come to church each Sunday, most of you. I can remember that when we were going to church before I was serving here, you know, I would go to church sometime and I would, I didn't expect anything to happen. I came with low expectations and guess what? I got low stuff back. I went and came and went and I had, there was no sense of the holy. Because I did it all the time. How about you? You come on Sunday morning with some expectations that you'll be touched in a profound way. You come looking for that or just come and go. You see, even for you and for me, the familiarity with holy things can rob us of, of, of wonderful, wonderful experiences. So we have to think about Wow, I'm going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Isn't that wonderful? I'm going to commune with Jesus Christ through the bread and wine. I look forward to that. Then the holy becomes holy again. And even, even this space, you know, it's very easy for this space to become common. So this space is just like that space. And I think that's not right. On the floor of the church, where John Wesley preached his first sermon, there is a poem. It's engraved in the floor. And it says, Enter these doors as if the floors within were gold as if the walls of jewels, all of wealth untold, as if a choir in robes of fire were singing here, nor shout, nor rush, but hush, for God is here. God is here in this holy space. And if we treat it as a common space, 
it loses its holiness. Nor shout, nor rush, nor gab, nor poke, shout, but hush, for God is here. And so when Jesus made enemies, it was because it was because the religious leaders, people who should have known better, they got holy stuff didn't mean anything to them anymore, and they could plan murder. Pastors need to treasure, treasure the holy and remind themselves that every time you, you get the privilege to preach, that God can do something wonderful to you and through you. I have to tell myself that. And for you here, I hope you come every Sunday expecting a miracle, expecting God to speak to you. And when you come in here, nor shout, nor rush, but hush. For God is here. Amen. What we believe rests in history, in story. If you think about the Apostles' Creed, the second article, it's all history. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered on the Pontius Pilate. And so for, for Lent this year, I'm going to read the history of the Passion of our Lord. This is the, uh, the suffering of Jesus as it's recorded in the four Gospels, put together as a single narrative. And there are seven sections. And it takes us through the whole time of Jesus before, before his up to and through his crucifixion. So this is part one of the history of the Passion of our Lord. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will, will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and took counsel together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be a tumult among the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and engaged to give him money. So he agreed and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house which he enters and tell the householder, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I am to eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. And they went and found it as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he sat at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, 
I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I shall not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you, that from now on I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. A dispute also arose among them, which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For which is the greater, one who sits at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who sits at table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have continued with me in my trials. As my Father appointed a kingdom for me, so do I appoint for you, that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, Jesus rose from supper, laid aside his garments, and girded himself with a towel. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. He came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not know now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part in me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is clean all over. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, You are not all clean. When he had washed their feet and taken his garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of you all. I know whom I have chosen. It is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I tell you this now before it takes place, 
that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives anyone whom I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. Part 1 of the History of the Passion of Our Lord.